Morning. Morning all. Morning. So here we are. Beatitudes week two and it's the 9th of January 2008. Um, before I start I just feel I want uh, the Lord is saying to start with this. Uh, something that is, it really made me laugh. Um, this is a book called Wake in the Dead by John Eldridge. The Glory of a Heart Fully Alive. Subtitle. And um, this bit is headed up. The offer is life in italics. The glory of God is man fully alive. That was Saint Irenaeus. Um, wait a minute. No, I'm on the wrong bit. Sorry. Sorry. This is the bit I wanted. It's actually headed up. Eyes to see. When Spillane, the perfect storm. It must have been a film, I think. Treats injured seamen offshore. One of the first things he evaluates is their degree of consciousness. The highest level known as alert and oriented times four describes almost everyone in an everyday situation. They know who they are, where they are, what time it is and what's just happened. If someone suffers a blow to the head, the first thing they lose is recent events. Alert and oriented times three. And the last thing they lose is their identity. A person who has lost all levels of consciousness, right down to their identity, is said to be alert and oriented times zero. When John Spillane wakes up in the water, he is alert and oriented times zero. His understanding of the world is reduced to the fact that he exists, nothing more. Almost simultaneously, he understands his excruciating pain. For a long time, that is all he knows. John Spillane is a para-rescue jumper sent into the North Atlantic into the worst storm of the 20th century, the perfect storm, as the book and the film called it, to rescue a fisherman lost at sea. When his helicopter goes down, he's forced to jump into pitch blackness from an unknown height, and when he hits the water, he's going so fast it's like hitting the pavement from 80 feet above. He's dazed and confused just as we are when it comes to the story of our lives. It's the perfect analogy. We have no idea who we really are, why we're here, what's happened to us or why. Honestly, most days we are alert and oriented times zero. <laughs> that was brilliant. You need to know that my microphone picks up everything. <laughs> just, just for your information. You can talk away, but it picks up everything, so. <laughs> I might identify it and say, that was Anne. <laughs> <laughs> it's a multi-directional, so that people can ask questions and you can hear the answers. Good, isn't it? Quite relaxed it was. Okay, first passage of scripture I want to look at is Numbers 11, 1 to 3. Every time I hear pages going, I think of Graham. Shuffle, shuffle, shuffle with the pages. Numbers 11, 1 to 3. He was in a meeting, sitting in the back row, uh, and it was pretty turgid, and the speaker came up and suddenly he says, I have a picture. It's of a, a monkey, 
on a tightrope in a train in a what do you call it a jumpsuit train it trainer suit what, what do they call that thing unicycle on a tightrope blindfolded pedaling backwards over a ravine towards a waterfall steps away from the microphone and they'll sit there up comes another one. Anyone got an interpretation? Then you start hearing it. As the pages go, proper Pentecostals, you know, got to find out. Graham's sitting in the back row. There's a, a vicar, a couple of things along from him, a couple of seats blank, and there's a, looks at this vicar. Vicar says, Derek. Graham says, Graham. Vicar says, fancy a coffee or fancy a pint? Best suggestion I've heard all morning, he says. <laughs> I forgot one bit. The, then, then the man who gave the word comes up and stands at the microphone and then goes, apparently, down in the spirit and Graham says, so would I, mate, when I brought a, <laughs> a picture like that. <laughs> He's just illustrating the dossy stuff that goes on in the church and Pentecostals always straightway go into shuffling the pages of their Bible and speaking in tongues when they don't know what to do. <laughs> to the business in hand. Number 11, 1 to 3. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them, some of the outskirts of the camp. I'm reading from the New American Standard because I didn't think it makes so much shuffling this morning. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. I think I'll go on to verse 4. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manner. What we're looking at this week is complaining versus thankfulness. Lord, change my attitude <coughs> before it's too late. Some 50 years ago now, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom I referred to last week, published 30 of his sermons on the famous passages in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, and he ended with Matthew 7, um, 24 to 27, which would be worth looking at. Look at my silent pages, let's listen to this. Very interesting scripture. Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it didn't fall for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell apart, and great was its fall. And again in verse 28 in mind, you see the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. 
So the piece about the house built on the rock or the sand, and we found that last week, unless we put into practice the things that Jesus said, we're actually going to founder in our Christian walk. And the Sermon on the Mount is a description of the normal Christian life, and we'll be unpicking it in detail over the coming weeks and months, should the Lord tarry, as we used to say in the Pentecostal Church. In this most famous passage, Jesus is saying we all need new birth, new nature and new life. This is Matthew 5, 6 and 7 now, that whole sermon as we know it. We cannot live life like this as we are by nature. We must be made anew, receive the new DNA, the new seed. And he's saying he's come in order to give us this new life. In relationship to him, we become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He came not merely to tell us about this teaching, but to tell us that it is possible, by his Spirit's indwelling, to live a life like this. This is not the impossible dream. The sermon is a description of us who have received the Holy Spirit. It's not a description of a natural man striving to make himself right with God, but of God making his people new. Jesus came to start a new humanity. He's the firstborn among many brethren. He's God's new Adam, and all who belong to him are going to be like him. If we start, if you like, with an acorn, um, I thought it was the wrong time of the year, but I'd love to get some little acorns, which has the potential to grow into a strong and beautiful oak tree given the right conditions, which will give shelter and shade to many. And Isaiah 61 verse 3b says, They shall be trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This whole thing is about the fact that he may be glorified. Uh, We looked at this from Waking the Dead, John Eldridge, the glory of a heart fully alive. It's the glory of God that we show forth his glory. um, Because we are the glory of the Lord. We are the pinnacle of what he uh, created. So this week we're going to look at the attitude, I hear the groans, of complaining versus thankfulness. And we're going to see how we can make any mid-course corrections if we need to, in order that we may grow into oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And Luke 6, 27-36, says this, because this is a bit more of the sermon in another gospel. Interesting thing that jumped out at me. But I say to you who hear. So important that we hear. What did he say in the Revelation? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we said on Saturday, didn't we, the Shema is here, O Israel. Hear, hear, with a view to doing something about it. Not like we use the English here, is just hear. But in the in the uh, Hebrew and the Greek, when he says the word here, it means with a view to obeying. Love your enemies, like that bit. Do good to those who hate you. Oh, bliss. Bless those who curse you, of course. And pray for those who spitefully use you. I began to realise why I'd been in what I'd been in <coughs> over the Christmas time um, when I read this and thought, ah, God was waiting for something from me. I do hope he found it. (laughs) 
to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer him the, the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Um, we do, don't we, say, oh, well, they've been good to me, so... That's the way the world looks at it. I hate to hear Christians saying that. Oh, well, they've been good to me, so I'm going to... No, no, no. That is not the reason for being good to them. <coughs> and if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive back as much. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High God. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. I was reading something the other day, and I think it was Graham Cook's, and he said, do you believe that God loves Osama bin Laden as much as he loves you? And it, it, it made me think. And I thought, I know the answer is yes. <laughs> but I've still got to get my head around that fact that he actually does. So what does it boil down to? In a word or in a sentence, love those who are incapable of loving you. This is agape, is that the right way of pronouncing it? In action. It goes totally against the natural man. And we cannot make it happen. We can't, as I said to you last week, suddenly sit down and start deciding I'm going to be loving and kind and patient and all those things. Because as we saw when we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, it is the life of the Spirit of God in you being allowed to manifest his life through you. It is your yielding to him that brings forth the fruit, not you trying to twist your human nature and make it go into a position it won't do. It's always a question of, I must decrease, he must increase. And as he increases, so the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit comes through. I think one of the things and the shifts that God is speaking to me about and spoke to me about this morning was that he wants an eros agape shift in his church because what has happened is that we've had an eros shift into the church that we say it's not getting the church out of the world that is the difficulty but getting the world out of the church that is the difficulty because our value systems our uh, aims and aspirations the way we do everything in church is exactly a mirror image of the way they do it outside the promotions are the same the music is the same blaring out loud as, as if the Lord's death there is, it is exactly the world brought into the church because we have never had an eros agape transformation and I think I can't say but I believe that it's part of the shift of this new era in God and he's going to show us how to do it because the reason we have never been able to do what we've been told to do which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart soul mind and strength is we've tried to do it in our own strength 
So it's been easier to do the second commandment first, which is to get out there and do things for people and shouldn't they be grateful? You know, and do things all in the church and get busy in the church. And we've equated busyness with godliness and it isn't. And that is the move that is coming, is that he's changing his people, which will impact the people out there. When you can't keep your hands off someone because you love them so much, the love of God is manifested. A young man came to the conference on, on Saturday, and I say this to the glory of God. I looked at him, thought it was the lady's husband, and thought he's changed his skin colour. Because he looked so much like the lady's husband. Well, I thought he did. That was who I was expecting to see her with. Suddenly realised it wasn't him, it was her brother. Uh, who they said they might bring along and so I just I said have you warned him <laughs> a cuddle <laughs> and he phoned me yesterday and he said we had no idea that it was all about love now I didn't think I was preaching or teaching love on Saturday I thought it was quite a strong message actually it was come on now <laughs> line up behind this but he saw it as love. He said we were just taught to pray and read our Bible and he said it was hard, it was awful, it was terrible. We had no idea it was about love. I thought well um, thank you Father. <laughs> so it goes against the natural man. Now in the natural my love, I, I looked upon him and loved him. Couldn't keep my hands off the poor boy, nobody's safe. You know, when the love of God goes through you, there is, it is not a natural rush of emotion. You know, you can see someone and you see them how he sees them. And that is what he's after, I think, in this church. And that is what the change is going to be all about. It's brilliant. Because we don't have to do anything except allow him to live his life through us. One life to be lived, not two. His through us. Right. Attitudes defined because uh, Mick asked me last week what is an attitude what do you mean by an attitude okay so I want to define what it is an attitude is a pattern of thinking developed over a number of years attitudes are patterns of thinking about a particular thing or situation where we consistently think the same way do you remember the paradigm shift, the lady, the old lady, young lady picture that I saw? I should be using that ever such a lot because you can look at the same thing in the same way and suddenly God shows you a different way of looking at it. You think, oh my word, he did it to me yesterday. I said, I've never looked at it like that. I'm so sorry. Because the moment that he gives you revelation on it, uh, you move your position from where you were because, ah, it's not how I thought at all. It's like looking at a building straight front on and saying, that's all there is to that building because I can't see anything other than this front piece. And then someone moves you around the side and you see it's three-dimensional and it's going to come back there. So that's what happens there. And with this particular person, God suddenly showed me that yes, there were problems, um, but their heart was good. And I had not seen that. <laughs> I repented in sackcloth and ashes, but it's made me think completely differently about the person concerned. Won't give you too much detail. 
So these patterns are so deeply ingrained in our hearts that we hardly notice them and they often start very early in life. So much so that we get used to reacting in a certain way and our choices become automatic to the point that they're non-existent and in time we actually cease to see that we've got a choice because that's the way it is, isn't it? Uh, for instance, if you imagine we have a little toddler here, three, maybe, four, holding a big red ball. We smile, encouragingly at him, but before we say anything, he says, it's my ball, it's not your ball. So he's got an attitude. This attitude may be influenced by his parents, the reactions he's seen in them to certain situations, or the fact that he's tired and needs a rest and a drink. But whatever it is, he's developing an aggressive attitude though he little realises it. If we continue to watch him, maybe he throws the ball and catches it. Then suddenly he drops it. What will his attitude be now? Silly ball. Who made this silly thing anyway, slippery thing? What kind of dumb parents have I got giving me a useless ball like this? Attitude of blaming the ball and others coming up, I think. <laughs> or... What kind of parents have I got letting me drop the ball? If they really loved me, they'd be here to pick it up or they'd have caught it for me before I dropped it so I wouldn't have got upset. Attitude of everyone look after me. I'm the centre of attention, the only one who counts round here coming up. It sounds silly, but that's how attitudes develop. As he gets older and has a habit of dropping balls, the self-centeredness develops into, I'm such a loser anyway. I always drop balls. It's always the same. I've played with other kids. They don't drop balls all the time. They'll have in tears in a minute. What's wrong with me? I'm such a loser. Attitude of poor old me coming up. These little speeches sound familiar, don't they? Just update and upgrade them a bit. Don't similar things come out of our mouths more frequently than we would like to admit, revealing a negative pattern of thinking because we all drop the ball don't we? I drop balls frequently but my response and reaction to them is completely different to Joyce's. Joyce would probably want to do a post-mortem or an autopsy to go back and see how we might have avoided dropping the ball. I say drop the ball, let's move on, pick it up, move on. <laughs> it's just how we used to look at things. <coughs> So the key to happiness is the attitude we choose when we drop the ball, or perceive that we have, or someone else has dropped one on us. <laughs> you still Put another way, it's our response versus our reaction. So back to numbers 11, 1 to 3, and this is the NIV now. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then far from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he cried to the Lord and the fire died down. So the place was called Tabarah, because the fire from the Lord had burned among them, amongst them. Praise God, fire is not about to come from the Lord and consume us in this day and age, but because unlike the children of Israel, we have got something to combat our old nature, and that is the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is our personal trainer. So we never need to find ourselves in the wilderness if we'll put a few disciplines in place. D 
dependent on how we look at a situation will really determine the outcome. If we look at life with a continually negative basis, bias, that's what we'll get. Moving to another church, another house, another neighbourhood will change nothing if the outlook is yours and it's negative. You will get what you expect. It's called the universal law of sowing and reaping. You may have heard the story of a farmer standing by the side of the road and observing a large wagon filled with household goods moving towards him. The wagon pulled to a halt and the driver shouted, We're moving from Brownsville to Jonesville. How much further is it? About 30 miles, said the farmer. And what kind of people shall we expect to find there? asked the traveller. Well, what kind of people did you leave behind in Brownsville? Oh, they were just so negative, so miserable, liars, cheaters and so ungrateful. Just a godless bunch, all of them. That's the main reason we're moving. What kind of people will we find in Jonestown? The very same kind, I'm sorry to say, said the farmer. He knew that the traveller would find in the next town the same kind of people he perceived lived in Brownsville. The problem wasn't with the town, but with the traveller. So this week we're going to look at what constitutes a complaining attitude. And to see this fully, we'll be looking at the children of Israel in the wilderness being led by Moses, millions of them. You think, you know, when you think about it, I don't know how many you think of them, but there were millions of them. What a job. What a man. <laughs> Here we see ungoverned appetites. Because in the passage that we read, remember, uh, they were not satisfied with the manna which they collected fresh every morning. They wanted something more and they complained. And what we see here is that the Lord hears everything we say and complaining is an attitude that if left unchecked will wither my capacity to experience joy and genuine thankfulness. That's frightening because like the law of sowing and reaping comes into effect and when we'd like to be thankful we can't because we've hardened our hearts for so long we no longer know how to be thankful and grateful. Never, 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 never harden your heart. For your own good, beloved, don't do it. Ask the Lord to help you to guard against it daily because it is very easy to harden your heart. Those of you who have been following the saga of me and Michelle and Stephen and uh, Connie will know that there was a time one Saturday morning when I woke up and felt something had changed inside me. And I thought, I don't know that that feels terribly good. And as I prayed about it and sought the Lord about it, what I was doing was hardening my heart because I suddenly didn't feel anything in the situation. And so, in a way, in, in, in a self-protective move, I was hardening my heart. We need to stay vulnerable, take the pain when it comes and get healed. That is the way we have to walk it because otherwise we will put layers over our hearts and therefore we will not be open to what the Lord wants to do. We will get wounded, we will get betrayed, we will get stabbed in the back, we will get rejected but we can also get healed right away. And the whole thing is about choices. We do have a choice every moment of every day about how we will respond. I said to you last week, I think about the flannels on the bath. I mean that's the silliest little thing you could ever imagine but it's this sort of thing. I'll often go into the bathroom or even get in the bath and find I've no towels and no flannel. 
because bless her, Joyce has come in and gone, I want to make up a wash load, <laughs> gone. So this particular time, spotted the flannels, got some more out of the cupboard, different attitude to usual, not grumble, grumble, moan, moan. The flannels are gone, <laughs> there wasn't any of that, so I was pleased about that. Something must have been that good. <laughs> got in the bath, gaze went to where the usual bath towel is space and again I thought never mind don't matter about it do with the one you've got that'll be okay it'll be drying back by tomorrow I thought, oh lord it's so peaceful to live like this I want to live like this it's so peaceful I don't like being all ratty on the inside even if I'm not ratty on the outside so we need to become responders not reactors a thermometer shows the temperature, it reacts to heat and cold, up and down. A thermostat, on the other hand, keeps the temperature at the same level by responding to changes in the temperature and making the necessary adjustments to keep the temperature at the same level. Am I making myself clear? Yeah. So you get to choose whether you become a thermometer or a thermostat. And if you become a thermostat, you will actually affect other situations by how you are. When you go in, your peace will go with you. When you go in, your ability to mediate the situation will go with you. Otherwise, people will always want you to take sides. And when Jesus comes, he never takes sides, he comes to take over. Remember that in Joshua, either for us or against us? No. He does not come to take over, ever. Even if you are judging a righteous judgment between two things, it will be a righteous judgment and it will not come down on the side of either. It's, it's a, it, he will, you will not take sides with anyone. Do you remember Solomon and the two women and the baby and she's rolled over in the night and killed mine and he said, uh, well, cut the baby in half and the one whose baby it was said, forbid it, give it to her. So... Righteous judgments will mean that you walk in, you hear what God says, and you bring the word of the Lord in the, into there. Whether they hear it or not is another issue, but you have to do it. So choices. And it's got nothing to do with feelings. I don't feel like it. What's that got to do with it? You make a choice, and your will gets used to being moved. Uh, maybe your will has never been exercised against your old sin nature, so now would be a good time to start uh, getting it fit by making some godly choices. Your will is just like your faith. If it's not exercised, it withers, it becomes flaccid, and when you want to believe something, your will and your faith are flat on the floor like deflated balloons. In Philippians, I think it is, it says that God is in you both to will and to do. So his will is there, there's two wills at work in your life did you know that his will and your will so you line your will up with his and the power of God comes behind it Joyce said to me last night making a choice isn't enough I said yes it is because then the Holy Spirit comes in behind your will to cause you to go in the direction you've chosen I might want to lose my rag over something but I choose not to two minutes down the road I'm thinking here I didn't lose it. Why didn't I lose it? Because I've lined up with the Prince of Peace whose spirit is within me and I've not lost my rag. It is a will choice. So you just 
you commune with the Holy Spirit and you just and then I've told this time and time again to you how David uh, David Hillsley around there he'd been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and he was talking about choices and I went back the following week and he's, he's ever so tall anyway and he's on about six inches of podium I looked up at him I said David I've been I've made my choice and it hasn't made any difference what's, what's the matter and he looked down at me and said you don't make just one you make them all the time oh <laughs> goes away and has a rethink <laughs> yeah whatever do Graham Cook says you have to have your faith response ready it's no good hitting a crisis and hoping you'll be able to muster up enough faith to get you through. Decide in advance where you will position yourself because position affects petition in the same way as attitude affects altitude. When we position ourselves correctly before God in any given situation, it will affect the way we see the situation and therefore the petition we make to Him. We may wobble but we won't fall down. With the situation that Joyce and I have come into recently, we've had to still ourselves and find out how to pray in the situation. Find out what God wants to do and pray accordingly. So you, it's no good going to pieces and it, and it all relates to how you see him. All of this comes down to who is he for you? How do you see him? What's your relationship like with him? Number one, the number one thing is how you see him. There's nothing else. What is God to you? That is life sum and bonum. Who is he? How do you see him? Because as Christians, everything stands or falls by that. We can't just parrot a few verses that we've heard. I was thinking just superficially on the promises this morning and I read something. I thought, well, there's a promise. But I thought, it's no good standing on the promises, as it were, if you don't know who made the promise. You've got to know him. That's what, that's what the Christian walk is all about, is knowing him. Everything for an audience of one, doesn't matter diddly squat what anybody else thinks, if you're getting the thumbs up from him, they can think what they like. It's a place of such peace. Particularly if your people please us, you get your fear in the right place, as Graham says. Fear God and then you won't fear anybody else. It's all about Him. So most of us, when we come into the Christian walk, are unaware that we're meant to grow up and go on. Uh, it's as though someone said to me on Saturday, we've always been taught that it's a quick prayer and then we live our lives as we like. And it came as a complete surprise. And what a state we've got ourselves into. No wonder God's stepping in and doing something before it's too late. And some people right now are finding that this is not what it's all about. And it's causing a complete rethink of their basic value systems. And sometimes God just has to pull the lot down before he can start to build. Do you remember Jeremiah? He had the commission uh, to root out, pull down, destroy, overthrow, build and plant. It's worth having a look at it actually. It's Jeremiah 1, 10. 
I remember saying this to a dear one not so far away from here, and she said, God would never do that. And I thought, well, it's actually scriptural. And it's actually Jeremiah's commission. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So before he's building and planting, he's pulling stuff down uh, because it's absolutely no good building on a wrong foundation. So the rooting out, the pulling down, the destroying and the throwing down came before the building and planting. And I think you probably spell that P-A-I-N-F-U-L. Painful. Mm. <coughs> <coughs> so look a little closer at the grumbling and complaining attitude of the Israelites and the fact that God hears it. That's scary. When we express resentment over circumstances that are beyond our control and about which we are doing nothing we are complaining and God hears it and he hates it and left unchecked it pushes us into the wilderness one of the first things I became aware of as a new Christian was the fact that God heard and saw everything I said and did I couldn't hide a thing I remember at the time I went up to Wales and I, I can just vaguely remember taking a word to someone even then and saying to them God hears what you say in your bedroom I don't know what they were saying <laughs> or against whom but they obviously felt that in the confines of the bedroom they could say what they thought and he wouldn't hear it and it didn't matter even if they were ever conscious of the fact that he heard I've said to you before the time that I was reading Psalm 139 and I suddenly realised that God saw everything I said and did. I wanted to crawl in the space under the sofa because I just, it was whither can I go from your spirit? Can't I do a thing? And I very soon learned that God sometimes became silent and I wondered why he seemed so far away. I'd wandered off into my own particular wilderness had someone here on Monday, a uh, youth pastor, hadn't heard from God, couldn't hear from God recently. said, what's the last thing he said to you? I came up with that. I was sitting in the little, in Windchime, and sticking out of the corner, I suddenly saw my checklist for confession. And I thought, oh, surely not. So I sort of caught the corner and, and pulled it out, and started to read from the top this checklist. So I just want to read something, see if anything rings a bell. Succumb into flattery was the top one on the fl And so it went on, you know. Da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da. I looked up at him, he said, can I read that? I said, sure, I'll leave you on your own. <laughs> hadn't been keeping short accounts. Hadn't realised he had to. It's like God is, is putting back into place the basic stuff 1 John 1 9 if, if we walk in the light let's have a look I taught on it you remember at one of the batons recently in the afternoon and I had the most amazing response because I didn't expect any really I thought everybody will have short accounts there 
remember the first time I've tripped over this little verse, I thought, that's not me, I'm 1 John 1 8. If we say we have no sin, I thought, me? I don't have any sin now, I'm born again, I'm clean. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I said, Lord, if I've got, if I've still got, you're going to have to show them. And he did. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, or just, it says in most versions, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It's written to believers. Most people don't know that they need to keep a short account with God. They need to do a review every day and have a look, see where they've missed the mark, because that's what sin is where they've done things they shouldn't have done, said things, thought things. As Graham Cook would say, I can't even think the things that I thought last week without the Lord telling me, don't have that thought. I did it last night, don't go there, he said. I said, right, don't go there. Very good, don't go there, don't want to go there. Stay where you are, don't go there. See, again, it comes back to walking with the Holy Spirit being in step with the Spirit, that is what he's there for, is to teach you a new way of doing things, a new way of thinking. You cannot do this on your own. When it says be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might test and approve what's the good, acceptable and perfect will of God for you, Romans 12:1, I think, uh, <clears throat> and 2, um, he's talking about the walk with the Holy Spirit. He makes it easy. Once we get the basic disciplines in place, but if we don't get those basic disciplines in place, we'll just find ourselves going round other things, the same things, time and time and time again. And this young man, uh, I left him, and um, he did business with God and came out with a big grin on his face, and he'd heard all right then, and that's good. So the reason God hates grumbling and complaining is really, really simple. It cuts us off from the communion with him that he so desires. That is why he hates it. He created Adam, he created Eve, in order that he might have a people for himself with whom he could commune. What did he do when he created them? He walked with them in the garden in the cool of the evening. It's all about relationship. A people for himself. So when we do these things, we cut ourselves off from him and it grieves him because he wants intimacy all the time. Constant, unbroken fellowship. A father with his children. That is what he's after. And the spirit that is in you yearns jealously over you. I said to the Lord, you've heard me say this before too. Don't let me be silly now because the thought that you might be jealous might make me a bit coquettish. <laughs> hey, don't let me be silly. Nobody's ever been jealous of me over me before and I thought this is new. I like this. So what actually gets satisfied when we grumble and complain? What is it? I don't want to hands up. What is it about grumbling and complaining that we enjoy? It satisfies our fallen nature. Maybe it doesn't even come out of your mouth, but it's in there and he sees it. You say, I don't say anything. I suffer in silence. Not inside you don't. <laughs> it 
inside you're busy justifying to yourself why you feel as you do and what's more you have every right and if you don't you're built differently from me <laughs> as you all know I've been through a few choices in the last few weeks some were delayed while I enjoyed a few carnal moments rehearsing what I thought I would say and writing letters I would never post I didn't enjoy it but I couldn't seem to stop my mind going there and another thing and yeah and if I ever get the chance it's a pity little sentence that my, it would destroy the relationship but it's a pity little sentence you're quite proud of the fact you can still line up a pithy sentence no we choose our attitudes the ongoing saga is that um, I think uh, yes last week of course I had to gallop up didn't I gallop back uh, come the weekend Stephen has now received a letter from Ken my ex-husband Ken very angry Don't, it takes a lot to get him angry and shift him he's making issuing breathing out threats like if I don't get an apology within a month I'm gonna don't know what he's gonna do but anyway so I felt I should go up and see Stephen on Sunday uh, just to stand with him and support him because it's a nasty situation that he's got himself into and um, I went up there went out with Connie on her bike or went out with her while she rode her bike and um, when it came to me just going home I was only about an hour and a half two hours something like that um, managed to scrape the car too trustees I managed to scrape the car getting it in the garage on Saturday night I thought I was going along the mattress that is along the wall but I wasn't I was going along the wall <laughs> so there's confession time talk to you about that later went up there anyway saw them kissed Michelle goodbye kissed Connie goodbye I stepped out the door and Stephen said give us a kiss then mum because I've forgotten to give him one so I gave him one thanks mum he said for coming up the Lord has his ways of doing things doesn't he so we'll see I've still got my armour on I've still got my strategy that God's given me so that's my little five stones in my posh at the back here so we choose our attitudes we do they don't choose us we choose them and we've spent sometimes a lifetime perfecting these things and they become part of us and none of us wants to be told I certainly don't we have seen the enemy and he is us because we don't believe it just the other bloke if he wasn't like that I wouldn't be like this right if you hadn't done that I wouldn't have done this blame wouldn't. Madame Gill is the one she says blame you, is, is something you, you, nev you can never do uh, and I'm thinking I'll get my head around that one because the responsibility she maintains is always with us because it's us that choose our attitude so the children of Israel in the wilderness had more than enough to be thankful for but they chose complaining 12 spies into the promised land they go and come back with a good report no, they come back with a negative report only 2 of the 12 said God is with us we're well able grumblers and complainers 10 covenant keepers too so putting the disciplines in place then short accounts 
Thankfulness, attitude of gratitude. If all we're doing is repeating situations and circumstances over and over again, we are not learning from past experiences at all. God's intention is that we should use the circumstances to grow and not harden our hearts in the process. The response which says they are never going to get the better of me again, I'm not doing that, I'm not having that, which prepares its answer, stands guard over its privacy or whatever else it is, is not learning anything from the experience that God allows in our lives and indeed is missing the whole point of why God is allowing the circumstance. It was only this week when I was writing these notes that I realised what God had put me through and was putting me through with the whole situation of what's going on up the road. It was about my reactions. It was about what was going on inside me, whether it was coming out of my mouth or not, and how I was responding to I mean, we started with it, pray for those who despitefully use you and bless those who curse you. We are actually subject to quite a lot of cursing in this ministry, which is good because it means that we're doing things. Uh, and we're attracting the enemy's uh, attention, which means that we must be poking him in the eye every now and again, which he doesn't like. Uh, I got a little bit of information last week from someone who felt that they needed to tell me and I've really do feel that maybe I need to tell them that they're young Christians so they wouldn't understand that someone had been really speaking against the ministry uh, and actually saying that I had been taking money out of the ministry <laughs> I said that's a new one <laughs> I'm putting it in not taking it out but I thought well bless them oh bless them someone who didn't get what they wanted years ago still full of angst and bitterness and now cursing. Send them to the treasurer. <laughs> yeah, if you didn't get that CD, it's send them to the treasurer. I like that. That's right. I mean, it's, it, you, you, you think, wowee. Uh, but it was, it was interesting that it was part of what was coming. There was all the flack that I was getting from up the road. That There was that. There's Joyce's problem. So we, could, we were head to sort of here in a lot of circumstances um, but God is allowing them all so it's down to our thinking I want to grow through this I don't just want to go through it don't want to go through this lot again so I want to do the right thing so it's important that we actually take time sit down and review before God disagreements arguments differences in relationships and ask the Holy Spirit how we could have improved our performance in the situation and how he would want us to respond in the future. I learnt this one when I was still at Bexley. Things would happen during the day and I'd get cross and I'd come out with a few and because of the position that I held I could exercise that authority but I knew in my heart it was not the right way to do it so I'd go home or even on the spot I'd say to the Holy Spirit well, how else could I have done it then? Or said it. And he would say something mild, and I think, well, when you put it like that, I suppose I could. You know. So I'd try harder the next time to respond. I mean, you know the classic one where I 
tried to get in early in the morning because I was so busy. This was when uh, Manny was still in the seat before the other guy came. Nick, I can't remember his name for a minute. And uh, I tried to get in at half past eight. I got in at half past eight in the morning. As I walked in the door, the phone was ringing. And I thought, I do not believe this. I mean, half an hour early to try and get So I stomped across to the phone, picked it up and heard myself say, Good morning, how can I help you? I thought, who said that? (laughs) (laughs) It's brilliant. And then there was the classic with the car, wasn't there? Yeah, the classic with the car where we bought the car with the cheque went, they lost the cheque, so they wouldn't release the car. Uh, And here we are expecting delivery of this jolly thing and they wouldn't let it go. So June phoned me and said, you ain't going to get it. I said, what's his number? Everything, the old barrel came right to the surface. I thought, head off at the neck. And... I dialed the number and while I was dialing it I just said Holy Spirit just take control here because this poor man is going to get his ears chopped off and when he answered the phone I found myself saying okay how can we resolve this what is it you need how can I accommodate you (laughs) I thought I don't believe this totally different from how I was going to do it the poor bloke I thought he was going to have a nervous breakdown over the weekend, but he had a peaceful weekend. It's all to do with yielding to the indwelling Holy Spirit, moment by moment. You cannot get away from it, and if you want to be fruitful in your Christian walk, that's the only way to do it. His to live, yours to die for. But coming back to sitting down and taking time, there's an old hymn, Take time to be holy, speak oft with thy Lord. Um, Probably got it in here. Does anybody know it? I'm not getting any yeses. Joyce will know it. You know it, don't you, Joyce? I can't think how it's done, but I do know it. Take time to be holy. It sounds like a Francis Ridley Havergal type of thing, doesn't it? Speak oft with thy Lord, abide in him always, and feed on his word. Make friends of God's children, help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessing to seek. Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus like him thou shalt be, thy friends in thy conduct his likeness shall see. Take time to be holy, let him be thy guide, and run not before him whatever betide. In joy or in sorrow, still follow thy Lord, and look into Jesus, still trust in his word. Take time to be holy, be calm in thy soul, each thought and each temper beneath his control. Thus led by his Spirit to fountains of love, Thou soon soon shalt be fitted for service above. They knew it, didn't they? This is Sankey's Sacred Songs and Solos. However old Sankey is, that's that's going back, isn't it? I mean, I've got no, there's no dates on it at all. Moody and Sankey, wasn't it? 
consecration it's called I'll probably bring that one up next week take time to be there is no shortcut we do have to spend time anything worth having is worth spending time on isn't it and, and your, your walk is just the same we've got to slow down by looking to Jesus like him thou shalt be thy friends in thy conduct is like this you'll see we must slow down and become we'll be going into this next week if the Lord will if we don't our past will inevitably become not only our present but our future as well so we will live in present past we have to learn to develop a new way of thinking and perceiving about every single negative circumstance in which we find ourselves they are the ones in which we grow the negative circumstances we don't grow in the good ones in this way we make progress we're not condemned we're on a journey our relationship with God grows and we begin to see what it means to live in righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Ghost Graham says uh, on one of his CDs righteousness peace and joy are always yours in fullness forever and I'm thinking because he says what particular spiritual gift or fruit or whatever do you need now and I'm thinking search me he says so much that I do not understand I don't know if anybody else is like that he actually has concepts that I don't understand it's taken me years to break to live them to break them down into such a way that I can try to teach somebody else but I mean maybe you're different from me perhaps you hear it, understand it, be able to put it into practice. I can't. Because where he is in his walk, he speaks a different language. And I've got to learn, da da da, mum, 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 I've got to learn the, the language that he speaks. And then suddenly I begin to see it and I'm thinking, ah, now I see what you mean because I'm living, that means that. But then when he came out with this one, righteousness, peace and joy, they're always yours in their fullness forever thank you well, I don't know what else I would like right now I'm thinking Holy Spirit help me what do I ask for uh, so the little scenario which I've been through recently brought home to me as I read Graham Cook's book I've been stuck in his little one living in dependency and wonder and he says nothing in the world can affect me negatively when I ask God for his perspective and more of his character. Every situation in life is about God wanting to give himself to us. Right now our lives could be good, bad or ugly, but we can be joyful knowing that God has designed our current circumstances to enable us to see a part of him that we couldn't see at any other time. Joyce and I, when we came into the circumstance we're in right now, decided and determined we were going to go through it with joy because God has designed it to enable us to see a part of him that no other circumstance would do so we get in a circumstance and say get me out of here he says no I've just spent a lot of time and money getting you in it I want you to see something so I've just said what I've got here now how many of you know that you have to be away along the journey before we can actually understand what Graham's trying to convey 
and I, I've read his stuff and, and listened to him for about 12 years and I'm only now beginning to see what he means and praise God I'm beginning to live it with the result that everything that happens can be turned to profit for me no matter how dire the circumstances may look on the surface so I am examining thoroughly before God my responses which didn't come out thank goodness to Stephen and Michelle during this particularly difficult time and I'm asking how could I not have even thought like that how can I progress to the place where I see it from your perspective immediately and respond accordingly I want to grow through this not just go through it we are our own best case study by examining the background and history of our relationships and disagreements we can establish what we would have wanted to change about how we reacted we can't go through this life unthinking just glad that it's over we need to develop the ability to unpick situations during and after the event in order to gain from them relationships do go up and down that's life but failure to learn from our mistakes means we are doomed to repeat them okay. I love uh, Graham's sense of humour he talks about people who live without thinking and says they could put the whole of their philosophy of being on a pinhead and still have room enough for two angels to waltz. <laughs> Ouch! That really hit me because I thought, here, excuse me. <laughs> it set me thinking actually what I'm sharing this morning. What values do I have? What is my philosophy of life? Our next door neighbour there is uh, the man is live and let live. It means nothing moves him, he just lets it all go by, doesn't matter what's going on, whether it's legal, illegal or otherwise, live and let live. And that's not how we're meant to be, it's like the case sarah sarah mentality, fatalism. I actually want the one that William Barclay has, which is up on the thing here, I'm working towards it. No matter what any man does to me, I will never seek to do harm to him, I will never set out for revenge, I will always seek nothing but his highest good. Such love is therefore not simply emotion, it's a deliberate conviction of the mind issuing in a deliberate policy of life. It's a choice. Agape is a, is a love of choice. It is not a natural eros, self-centred love, it is a love of choice. Uh, Oswald Chambers, uh, you've got to reach for something really, you know, you have got to reach for something higher than you're reaching for at present, otherwise you won't move. And Oswald Chambers says, our reach must always exceed our grasp. Our objective should be to avoid retaliation, sarcasm, anger, bitterness and resentment. These reactions are soulish and keep us tied to the flesh. To begin to move into the spirit, the opposite spirit to that which is coming across, we need to be ready, like little boy scouts, be prepared. Have our faith response ready, for a start. What will our faith response be when the storm hits? We mustn't be caught napping, and as we started with, we need to be alert and oriented times four 
not time zero. We need to train ourselves in righteousness. It doesn't happen automatically. Hebrews 12.11 says, No discipline seems joyous for the time, but afterwards yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, righteousness for those who have been trained thereby. If you haven't been trained by it, it won't yield any fruit at all. It's a training process. Discipline. D word. <coughs> the best way to train ourselves is by thoughtful combining of head and heart with the fruit of the Spirit. The best way to show and live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, recognize these, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control is by thoughtful passion. A life centered on Jesus who is our passion. All behavior needs training. There's always a better way to live. Undisciplined, we will revert to how we normally react. I had a phone call yesterday from a guy who came here on Monday. I had 50 minutes with us, and we, I thought, and he gave me such a story. I thought, he only finished telling me the story in the 50 minutes. But God did something. All I did was say to him, let me just dust you off of the defilement of your spirit, dear. That was all I could managed to get in the way of a prayer. So I just dusted him off for the def from the defilement. When he was sitting at lunch, he, he was all of a jig and a tingle, all up and down his arms all the time. The Holy Spirit was just moving all over him. Phoned me yesterday and said, my head's empty. I can't come to my default position. I don't know where I am. Um, but he, he was on drug rehab. And he said, I went this morning, but I wonder what I was going for. Because the default position of what he normally went to wasn't there. God had just sovereignly removed it. So I, I said to him, get yourself into the Bible. Get some good stuff in quick. You know, start reading it. Um, and it, bless him, he was, he was a, he'd, an ex-Muslim. So it was absolutely brilliant to, to see him. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, but God, God is just... Being God and doing things is brilliant. So undisciplined, we'll always revert to how we normally react, our default position, if you like. That's what brought me into that. We're training ourselves to be responders, not reactors. And 2 Peter 1.8, actually I want to start before verse 8. It's, it's, oh, just listen to this. I'll go back to verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, benediction, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, we've got it, everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, 
supply moral ex excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in see the progression and in your godliness brotherly kindness so it only comes there at the end after you've got all those other things brotherly kindness starts popping in and in your brotherly kindness love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you get those in increasing measure, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. So putting the disciplines in place, short accounts, thankfulness, attitude of gratitude, practicing reviews of our behavior, looking closely with the Holy Spirit how we could have done it differently. Result? Produce. Fruit. Love, joy and peace for a start. They are yours. In their fullness forever. As Graham says. So, uh, that's it. Thank you for listening. Week after next, replacing a critical attitude with an attitude of love. Easy stuff. Next week, winter school. So thank you for listening. God bless you.